I don't know about you, but when I listened to Matt share, I thought, man, and you maybe have heard me say this before, but if, if that doesn't light your fire, you got wet wood, okay? Uh, that is just, uh, that's just it. And tonight, uh, I have some announcements I'm going to make, but tonight we are going to gather as a church, as we do at least once a quarter, and we're going to be praying Colossians 4, 2 through 6, for Matt and for our other missionaries and, and Trista and our other missionaries that we support. Because we do believe that it is God who opens the doors. We believe that it's God who opens the mouths. And as we looked at last week at our evangelism training in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we believe that it's God who opens people's eyes and hearts and minds to the truths of the gospel. It is a work of God. And, you know, Matt's up there, well, you know, that's, that's just kind of the highlights of what God... What? People are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Is there a bigger miracle? No. People walking in darkness and now they're in the light. Um, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of, of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. We got a lot of things going on, opportunities you saw up there that uh, the Devers are involved in an ESL uh, evangelism outreach. You have an opportunity to do the exact same thing here at Creekside Church. We have about 2,000 people from Burma uh, in the Urbandale area, and many of them are coming on Tuesdays and Thursday nights here to Creekside Church to learn English. And you see it in the bulletin. There's an opportunity for you. There's an opportunity for me to help tutor some of these young people. You and I, if you're English-speaking people, we go home, we teach our kids and help them with their classes and help them with their English. Well, their parents of these students don't know English. They can't help their kids with their lessons. So you have an opportunity to do that. You have an opportunity to teach ESL or to help with the ESL. And you say, well, I can't teach ESL. If you can speak English... You can help with ESL, okay? Believe me, I've, helped, I've taught English, and I know zippo about grammar, you know? Try, to, try explaining somebody a present past tense, you know? Or, no, perfect past tense. I had had this. What in the heck is that, you know? But you don't have to do that. You just have to be able to talk and speak English. So that's a, that's a great opportunity. Uh, tonight we have our prayer night. It begins at 6.30. we got a team that's in Haiti, and God is doing great things. Uh, uh, Norb was baptizing somebody, and yesterday he was signing a marriage license. He and Karen were signing uh, somebody's uh, marriage license. I'm not sure how that flies, you know. Uh, you know, <laughs> got some American signing a Haitian's marriage license, but they don't care. It just works. Uh, so I'm excited. Keep praying for them. We put their names in the bulletin and their pictures last week. Keep praying for them. I'm excited about what God's doing in Haiti and how God's working. I'm excited about what's happening here on Wednesday nights. We see I, had, I took pictures. I didn't get them in there. But I told somebody I think about 80%, at least 80% of the people that are coming here on Wednesday nights don't go to this church. Okay? 
And uh, that's exciting for me. We have a ministry that we have an opportunity. Next week, we're going to start into a series uh, in the scriptures that is going to be a challenge because of the moral and cultural revolution in which we're living. We're going to be trying to address it head on with what God's word has to say about what is God's design for human beings. So we're excited about that. Uh, if you're here this morning and this is your very first time at Creekside Church, there is an additional flap on your bulletin. I don't know how to say it better than that, but if you want to fill that out and tear it off and put it in the pouches as they go by later in the offering, that would be sweet. We'd appreciate you doing that. Thank you for it. And if you're a regular attender here, you can also tear that flap off after you fill out. If you have a prayer request or something like that, we, we appreciate that. I invite you to pray with me if you would right now. Father, uh, I am very, very excited about the ministry that you've opened up for Matt and Trista and their family in Kuala Lumpur. I am so grateful for the divine appointments uh, that you are presenting them with and then the opportunities. What What a testimony to the reconciling power of Christ to bring people whose countries are at odds who are now family through Christ. I pray uh, that you would take your word, open our hearts to it, use it for your glory and for the gain of your kingdom. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Several years ago, we took our children who were young at the time, to a friend's house. And the children began to play, and our friend's children began to notice that our children were playing with some of their toys. They didn't like that so much. They resented the fact that our kids were playing with, and some of them were their favorite toys. And then our children began to notice that our friend's children were playing with some toys that they wanted to play with. And so... In one sense, it's comical, but in another sense, it's tragic because we witnessed children with their hands full of toys going over to another child who had a toy that they didn't want them to have and taking it out of their hands so that they could have more toys. There was a resentment of another person's enjoyment of something that they felt was exclusively to be theirs. This sort of child's play, when it's manifest among adults, is never more detrimental than in the case when a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ resents the possibility of an unbeliever sharing in the joy and the compassion and the grace of God. They would be somebody we don't want to have the experience of God's forgiveness like we have received. In Jonah chapter 4, the prophet exposes for us the horrific possibility and the sometimes proclivity of fallen human beings to want to hoard God's compassion. To keep what we have experienced by the grace of God from being somebody else's enjoyment and them participating in it. Our reluctance 
to, for certain people towards whom we maybe have a prejudice or a hostility or a bitterness from enjoying God's forgiveness and His compassion is something that the prophet sees challenged and condemned in his own life because this is Jonah. <laughs> He's experiencing this. And so we see it in chapter 4 that God's demonstration of His compassionate Compassion towards the rebellious prophet who represents all of us who at some point may or have resented the mercy of God poured out on somebody else. This demonstration of his compassion towards his rebellious people and his defense of his mercy towards the lost is revealed in the text And that serves to convict us of our selfishness and to convince us that, hey, you know what? We need to be about the business of sharing the gospel with everybody all over the place indiscriminately. And so uh, I want you to turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4, where it seems to me it plays out this way. Jonah experiences the, the, the compassion of God in spite of his rebellion. God condemns it and then challenges him and us to express and demonstrate that compassion towards everybody. And then the two scenes of this last closing drama in chapter 4 reveal how God condemns our callousness while extending and defending his compassion. I'm going to read the text. If you have your phone, you can look in that. You can look under the seat in front of you. There's a Bible, or if you have your own Bible, you can look and read that with me. In Jonah chapter 4, we begin this way. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm. When dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered, and it came about when the sun came up that, a, that God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. And then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. And then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow and which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand as well as many animals? The first scene is the exposure of displeasure. It's our displeasure over God's compassion for the lost is is expressed through Jonah, okay, vicariously through Jonah. Our 
displeasure. And there are three insights from the text if we look down through the text. First, our, our displeasure can be experienced and, and often is. We see in verse 1, but it greatly displeased Jonah. Literally in the Hebrew it is, but it was evil to Jonah, greatly evil to him. What was evil? Chapter 3, verse 10. The thought that God would allow Nineveh to repent and that God would relent of his judgment on these people. That God was not going to judge them like he thought that they should. And I thought about this. You know, Jonah's message wasn't profound. It wasn't some poetical oratory. In fact, it wasn't even popular. Yeah, Nineveh, yet 40 days and you're going to be judged. That was it. The sum total of the message. And his, his method, it, it wasn't polished. I thought about, you know, I could go out and just, I could go anywhere and say that. I could say, 40 days and you're going to be judged. That's not even hard to say. But his motive wasn't pure. And how do I know his motive wasn't pure? Or I don't think his motive was pure. I don't know for sure, okay? I don't think his motive was pure. You see, Jonah was called to preach, and Kyle reminded us of this, of, reminded us of this last week. We have the mission, too, to proclaim the message of God's judgment to a lost and dying world. Unless they turn to God from sin and repent. His motive wasn't pure because when his motive, when his message was productive, he got ticked off. Why would you get mad when what you said was effective unless you didn't really want it to be effective? And he didn't want it to be effective. I look at this and I think, wow, in some ways Jonah's encouragement to me and to all of us who are on this mission of proclaiming to a lost and dying world that unless they turn to God from their sin and trust in Christ, they will perish. Because I don't have to be polished. I don't have to be poetic. I don't even have to say what's popular. I just have to say what God says. And let God do the work because that's what he did in Nineveh. And that's what he'll do if we're faithful. Jonah's hostility towards God's extension of mercy to his enemies, unfortunately, is not exclusive to him. I don't think. How many of you have been driving along in your car in the, in the metro area and you're driving on the freeway, maybe you're headed down 235 and you're headed into town and someone in their Beamer just zips past you? You know, it's like, a, it's like you know, posted photo enforced at 55 miles an hour there going east into Des Moines. Or you're coming up to a stoplight and it's yellow and you slow down and it turns red and somebody zooms through the red light. Now, let me ask you this. Isn't there a part of you that says, I hope they get nailed? You know? Now, what's that about? You don't want them to get off scot-free? 
Isn't there an innate part of us that wants justice in the sense that we want those who violate the law or break some contract to pay the price? We want it. Um, you think it's right that, that Felicity Huffman is uh, spending 14 days in jail because she bribed some people to get her kids into an exclusive university? I don't think too many people have a problem with her spending some time in the, in the clink for uh, doing something that she shouldn't have done. Now, what happens if Lori Laughlin gets off scot-free? Because she didn't make a plea deal. Everybody going to be okay with that? Yeah, I'm not sure if we really want her to get off scot-free. I mean, after all, Felicity Huffman had to do it, you know? So I wonder, for you and for me, is, is there some member of my family that has hurt me deeply or hurt you deeply or maybe it's some obnoxious neighbor or maybe it's a really belligerent and evil and cruel boss or co-worker or classmate and you just really find it hard to believe that they wouldn't have to pay the price for what they've done to you or to somebody else. I want them to get what they have coming. I remember, not with fondness, going into the bedroom where the three young children were seated, and I had the horrific responsibility to tell these children, the oldest of which was six, that their father had just left their mother and wasn't coming home. That was 32 years ago. And now this same father wants to reestablish a really good relationship with those children that are now adults. Do you think, do you think that those children are just eager to let that forgiveness of God be overwhelm them and welcome that father back into that relationship? Or do you think they might struggle with that? Will they rejoice or embrace the reconciliation? It's possible and it's highly probable for God's people at some point to struggle with wanting those we despise for some sort of wickedness to escape God's punishment. That's what's going on with Jonah, I think. He hated the Ninevites. He, those Assyrian people were wicked and cruel, idolaters. How could God have compassion on them? Part of our fallen nature that if we're children of God, that, that God is redeeming. Part of that fallen nature that God is in the process of, of conforming to the image of Christ is that animosity that doesn't want to share. We're like the kids, right? We don't want them to have the toys we have. We kind of want them to, to do without. Keep them from the blessings. Now, this is not just the Old Testament. Some of you remember the story of the, the vineyard laborers in the vineyard in Matthew chapter 20. And uh, they go, the, the vineyard owner goes out in the morning and he hires people who are standing on the street ready to work. Well, will you work for a denarii? Yeah, I'll go. And then so, okay, they get hired right away in the morning, 6 a.m. in the morning. Then he goes back at noon. Anybody here willing to work? Yeah, come on and work. Anybody willing to work at 3 p.m.? Yeah, sure. Still guys standing around at 5 p.m. You want to go to work? Sure. They work till 6 
time to get paid. The guys that work started at five, they get a line up first. They go in, they get paid the same wage that the guys that were hired at 6 a.m. were promised. The guys at the back of the line see that and they're going, what? Wow, that's pretty cool. Because, I mean, we went here working all day, and so he paid them the same as he said he'd pay us. I'll bet you we're going to get a whole lot more now, and they get up there and you know the story. What's the parable of? The last shall be first and the first shall be last. It's a parable about entering into the kingdom of God. It's a parable about the people that we may not want to get in, the people that get in at the last minute under by the skin of their teeth. And are we to be resentful of those people? Or rejoice in those people. The parable of the lost son. Isn't it fascinating that it begins with the Pharisees who are ticked off at Jesus. And Jesus tells them three parables. And the last parable in each of the parables highlights their hypocrisy. And at the end, the elder son is mad standing outside pouting because dad's throwing a party for the wicked brother who came home. And the father said, should we not rejoice for this brother of yours who was lost and now has been found? You see, this is in the heart of fallen people to resent others receiving the mercy that we have received. And Jonah has this displeasure. It, it's experienced in his heart, and then he expresses it. And i got to appreciate his honesty in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. And he prayed to the Lord, and he's totally got honest. And at first, he's honest about his motivation and action. Therefore, isn't this the reason I didn't want to go to Nineveh? That's why I got in the boat, God, because I didn't want them to repent. I didn't want you having compassion on these people. And then secondly, I'm kind of been meditating, trying to think through this at the end of verse 3, or verse 2, yeah, verse 3 says, I know, for I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God. I knew that. Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and that you relent concerning calamity. I knew that. See, he's speaking from intellectual and experiential knowledge. He knew it in his mind and he knew it in his heart. That this is the character of God. That God has this character. And he affirms what all of the Old Testament affirms. I mean, you can read this phraseology in Exodus 34, in Psalm 86, verses 5 and 15, and probably the most familiar passage is Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. He will not strive with us, neither will he keep his anger forever. He, will not, he has not regarded us according to our iniquities. As high as the heaven is above the earth, so great is his compassion towards those who love him. As far as the east, East is from the west. So far has he removed his trans, our transgressions from us. He's mindful that we're dust. That's a sort of a paraphrase, okay. So what's he saying? What does it mean that God's gracious? Now think about this. It's the kind action of a superior towards an inferior 
who is absolutely undeserving of any generosity or any kind of treatment that's kind. I have a friend who was in a yearly review with an employee. And the employee was, had been all year whining and bellyaching and moaning and groaning and complaining and griping and criticizing my friend and the endeavor. I'll just say it's a ministry. He left. You know what my friend did? Gave him a big fat raise. Yeah, he gave him a raise. Most people would have fired him. He gave him a raise. Grace. The kind action of a superior towards an inferior who was absolutely undeserving of that generosity. And God is compassionate. What does it mean he's compassionate? His compassion is the deep internal love of God that is forgiving and willing to overlook our mistakes. My uncle, the one that just lost his wife, he used to hire some of the most destitute people in the whole town. I mean, these would be the, the town alcoholics, the town down-and-outers, you know, the, the, the people that would repeatedly let you down. He just kept hiring them. He'd keep them on. They'd mess up. He'd keep them on. He was compassionate. That love that was forgiving and willing to overlook their mistakes, he's not seeking it out. And then he's slow to anger. I like this because in Hebrew, Hebrew is a very idiomatic language, so the Hebrew means long of nose. That's literally the translation. He had a long nose. God has a long nose. He's not Pinocchio. Okay, That's what you're thinking. No, he has a long nose. And so you think about it. When you get angry, what's the, what's the manifestation of a person who's really angry? Their face gets all red and their nose gets red. And the longer their nose, the longer it takes for the redness to reach the end of their nose. Now, we'd say he has a long fuse. But God is willing to endure our knuckleheadedness for a long time before he disciplines us. Jonah knew it. Of course he knew it. We've seen that he knew it. Chapter 2, chapter 3. He experienced God's graciousness and compassion, and he's slow to anger. And he's abundant in loving kindness. You know the song. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. On and on and on and on it goes. It overwhelms and satisfies my soul. And then he relents of, of, of calamity. He's the God who in sovereign prerogative is willing to overlook and to not dish out punishment that should be given. And I had to ask myself, and I ask you, do I know God in my head and my heart this way? In my head. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I got that. I mean, I know the verses, you know. I, I, I've studied the Bible. I can read them. I, I know that God is compassionate, gracious and compassionate. But in my heart, 
do I understand that God is a superior who has treated me as an inferior who is absolutely undeserving of any generosity? That is, love overlooks so many of my mistakes. That is, patience doesn't just immediately mete out judgment that I deserve. That he abounds in love and commitment to me. And he's willing to turn from his sin. And that's what Jonah knew it in his heart. Experientially, we know it. The most profound demonstration of God's compassionate love towards us, his grace, his compassion, his loving kindness, is the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. That's where his love never fails, never gives up, never runs out. That's where he poured out his greatest demonstration of love towards those of us who are absolutely undeserving because we're a bunch of knuckleheads and we don't even care most of the time. He says, I love you enough to die for you, to send my son so that all who would believe would be forgiven. And his wrath would not come down upon us, but God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So, I know it intellectually. If I'm a child of God, I know it experientially. But do I also know it repeatedly? Have you ever had a Jonah experience? As a believer, as someone who's trusting in Christ, where it's like, okay, yeah, I've been rebellious, I've been rejecting of God's word, and I have been resistant to what God wanted me to do. And God kind of slapped me upside the head, got a hold of me, and turned me back in the right direction. Now, if that hasn't happened to you yet, look out, because it's coming. Because if you're a child of God, you fall and you reject. And it happens to me oftentimes. Now, I have never been in the belly of a whale or a fish. But I've been in trouble with God before. You know, I mean, God's like, okay, Steve, you're going to keep acting like a knucklehead. This is going to not go well for you. God doesn't give up. Remember... One of Kyle's statements last week about Jonah in Jonah chapter 3. God loves us. God pursues us. God wants to use us. Wow. That's what Jonah knew from experience. And Jonah was so jealous for God's compassion that the reality of his enemies receiving what he had drove him to think he should die. Verse 3. That's how whacked out he was. And then we see that God examines him. God kind of takes him to the woodshed. He says in verse 4, this is verse 4, do you have a right to be angry, Jonah? On January, uh, I'm not sure what day it was. It was MLK Day, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, January 2018. Here's the tweet that LeBron James sent out. I think we have it. Yeah. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. That's a quote of Martin Luther King Jr. 
So my question is, in light of the recent uh, silence of LeBron James over the atrocities and the injustice towards the people in Hong Kong, does he have a right to be mad because the Houston Rockets general manager, James Morey, came out speaking in favor of and supporting the protesters in Hong Kong? Now, I'm not trying to make a political statement. I'm just saying, does LeBron have a right to be angry? Someone who says this, who now is silent or actually critical of someone who's supporting those who seem to be oppressed. Well, if you see through the thing, you see that uh, the NBA and LeBron James stand to lose a lot of money if China doesn't do business with them. And so his anger is motivated by selfish profit. Profit. He had a reason. Yeah, he's got a reason to be angry. Joan had a reason. It wasn't because he was angry about the loss of profit. He was sinfully prejudiced. Both have a reason. Neither of them are good. That was God's question. You have a right to be angry. No, you don't have a right to be angry. You have a reason, but it's not a good one. You have a reason? Yeah, it's good. So that's the, the discipline that's exp- or the displeasure that's expressed. And then he goes on in the rest of the chapter and he exposes the error of that and he defends God's right to be merciful towards all. God's lesson comes in two ways. First of all, we see in verses 5 through eight, the, the particulars of that lesson. First of all, we see our pouting. What, what was verse 5? Did Jonah answer the question of verse 4? No, he just went out and pouted. He's out there. Uh, he's not a very good uh, survivalist, not very good. Uh, I, I suppose he hadn't watched uh, Survivor, and so uh, Bear Grylls wasn't on his radar, and so he didn't have a very good shelter. And so he's out there moaning and pouting in the sun, and he's not very well off. I mean... When I was six or seven, my, my neighbor kids weren't playing very nice with me in the sandbox, so I just took my toys and went home. That's what Jonah does. He just took his toys and he, and he went home. He feels justified in his anger. But God keeps pursuing him. Look at verse 6. So the Lord God appointed. Verse 6, verse 7, verse 8. God appointed, God appointed, God appointed. Guess what's going on? God's up to something. Because God's compassion towards our rebellion almost always includes correction. Did you know? Okay, young people, get this. When your parents correct you, if they're good parents, they do it because they love you. Correction is a manifestation of compassion. If we didn't give a rip, we wouldn't do anything. So this is what he does. He's, he's, he's pursuing him. I just, again, it's marvelous that the compassion that God demonstrated towards Jonah, the very compassion that Jonah despised being demonstrated towards Nineveh, the very compassion that he declared God would demonstrate towards Nineveh, he is now delivering to Jonah again. Does that make sense? He's, de- he's delivering compassion when Jonah has been despising the compassion given towards Nineveh. It's totally 
God being gracious and generous towards somebody who deserves to be hit upside the head and said, Jonah, wake up, you are so wrong here. Well, it's actually what God is doing. The pouting prophet gets pampered. <laughs> There's a plant. This plant. See, God is not just the God of the first chance or the second chance, but the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and the seventh chance. And so on. You think about Peter in John chapter 20. Peter had denied Jesus how many times? Three times. Three times. I got three. So here's what, if you're in Europe, you do this way. Three. Okay. Uh, we do it this way. Three. So three times. Jesus comes to Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know it. Three times. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yeah. Peter, do you love me? Three times. It's his compassionate concern. He's pampering him. Amazing genera- demonstration of God's generosity that he didn't deserve. It's the father that I heard about whose son was whacked out on drugs and alcohol and he'd been on a binge and the father found out where he was and he went to the home where he was and he's walking over bodies that are passed out on the floor and he finds his son lying on a couch presumably passed out from the previous night's activity and he goes over to his son and he leans down over his son and he whispers this, Son, I love you. And then he kissed his son. And he walked away. God's treatment of Jonah. God's treatment of you and me when we act like we shouldn't act. He's so gracious and he's so powerful. He's compassionate towards his rebellious people that brings correction. And here's the correction. He appointed a plant, but then he appointed a worm. And the worm ate the plant, and the plant withered. And then he appointed a scorching wind, which is probably what uh, maybe just a, a Scirocco wind, which in that part of the world raises the temperature, the average temperature, something like 16 to 22 degrees above the average. And it just sucks all of the moisture out of the air and out of everything that's alive. And so now Jonah is really like back in the belly of the fish, you know. He went in that kind of way. He went from one extreme to the other, you know. Couldn't have been more moist uh, to be more dry, okay. So think about that. He's whining about being too moist. He gets what he wants. Now he's too dry. God got his attention, just like he did my friend Greg Buckley, who was calling Ralph on the big white phone after a, a, a night, and God said, whoa, you are need to get a life and do what I've called you to do. And what's the point of all this? And that's where we get to in verses 9 through 11, because God reveals the air, our, our anger over selfish compassion. Look at verse 9. He says, then God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry? Heard that one before? Yeah, verse 4. Only this time he's applying it to the plant. Do you have a right to be angry over the plant? And Jonah says, absolutely, I'm justified in being angry over the plant. And then he says this, God says to Jonah, you had pity over the plant. And guess what? What What's this plant mean to you? You didn't plant the plant. You didn't water the plant. You didn't cause the plant to grow. And for a fact, the plant was here today and gone tomorrow. How many of you garden? How many of you landscape? You plant things in your yard, you know? I planted some trees once, and the rabbits came and nipped off the tops of the trees. I was so ticked off. 
And I felt bad for the, for the trees. But it's a tree. I'm sorry. You know, offend somebody's sensibilities. It's, it doesn't have a soul. How much more, God says. He rebukes the anger. See, he reveals our anger over selfish compassion. I have a right to be angry over that which I care about, but it's a plant. And then he rebukes any anger or resentment we would have over God's sovereign compassion. Jonah, how much more should I have compassion over 120,000, and I like the way the text says, souls, lives, people, that I created, that's all implied, you know, Jonah, you didn't cause the plant to grow. You didn't create the plant. It only, I created it. And all the animals. God has a right to be angry at Jonah because Jonah didn't pity what God pitied. And they don't, what does it mean? They don't know their right from their left hand. It means they're lost people. <laughs> they're, they're in the dark. We're not justified in our resentment towards anyone who would receive the message of salvation through faith in Christ. I heard about this. I, I, I don't know we ever did this, but you know what some parents do to avoid what happened in the beginning of the story? They take their kids' favorite toys and then they put them in a separate room and box them up away from the other toys that they let the neighbor kids play with. So if we're inviting friends over, hey, we take our special toys and we put them up and we only have the who cares toys out for everybody to play with. Aren't you glad God doesn't do that? I'm really glad that God doesn't take the good stuff and only keep it for some. But he makes it available for everyone. And that's what he wants to do. You know, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the message to you is the same message Jonah gave to Nineveh. Turn to God in faith from your sin and be saved. Because God wants to welcome you in. You are deserving, just like I am, of judgment and condemnation. But in God's infinite mercy and love, he welcomes you into his family if you will turn in faith from your sin to God and repent. That's the message of salvation. The people of Nineveh are going to judge the hypocritical Religious leaders of Jesus' day. That's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, verse 32. So we know that when they turn to God from their sin in faith, that they were genuinely converted. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, guess what? Just take a moment to think about God's grace, compassion, and love towards you. And rejoice in it. But don't keep it to ourselves. Rejoice in it. And then join me. Let, let's repent of any animosity or resentment I would have towards God extending that grace to other people. Would you want God to extend his grace to the people that Matt's talking about that they're meeting in their home? Is there any race of people that you would say, no, I, God just, you know, or maybe there's some people that act in certain ways. You know, they have certain behaviors and certain uh, 
belief systems and we just find it hard to think that those people would join us in the kingdom of God. Well, maybe they won't if they keep up with their behavior, but do we hate them because of their behavior or do we want them redeemed and saved? Do you have coworkers or family members or people that are your neighbors that you say, I just want them to pay the price for their sin. I really don't want them to get a pass. So repent of that. Confess our sin before God and say, Lord, give them grace. You know, here, listen to this. this is, these are the, the most caustic words that we could ever say. And I'm saying we should not have this mind of Jonathan Swift who said, we are God's chosen few. All others be damned. There is no place in heaven for you. We can't have heaven crammed. Do you hear how atrocious that is? How contrary to the heart of God that is? I want heaven full. I want heaven full to overflowing. I want to see everyone come to know Christ. And I pray for God to forgive me for anybody that I would not want to be there. I don't care who they are. We have the message that is the most precious thing on the planet. And if we were going to stick it under a bushel and hold it there, we are to be judged. God, help us. Forgive us. Relate this truth to everybody. And what a better way to remind us of what God has done for us than to break the bread and to share this cup as a reminder that we are the recipients of God's grace called to share that message. Let's pray. Father, give us grace to not be like Jonah. And where we are, convict us and convince us to take the truth to a lost and dying world. I thank you for this reminder through the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup of your grace and compassion and patience and loving kindness and your willingness to turn from judging us. I pray that we would share it with others as we enjoy it and celebrate it today. We pray in Christ's name.